This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, how has COVID-19 affected the care of patients with diabetes? But we found a lot of evidence that disruptions to care can impact people with long-term conditions during national emergencies. Also, the thing that really worries me is the people we don't have data on. There's a whole subset of the population who's probably been very affected. What we absolutely need to be doing is targeting the people who we haven't seen in general practice. Hello there, welcome to another SNUG podcast. SNUG stands for the Scottish National Users Group for GPIT. We all have a big interest in how information technology and our information systems can help us deliver better healthcare within Scotland's general practices. I'm Andrew McElhinney and I'm a GP in NHS Fort Valley. And I hope you're all feeling okay wherever you're listening to us from and in spite of all the current problems in the world that you are managing to stay positive. Now, today we're returning to the care of patients with long-term conditions and I do think today's subject is really important and interesting and makes up the third part of a trilogy that we've been working through recently. We do love a good trilogy. So recently we've covered how the house of care approach focuses on involving patients more in shared decision making by giving them more information in how we can involve them in better conversations about their care. And at our Snug Members Day on Wednesday the 25th of May, we will be hearing more about that. Now we've also heard about how we can collect data from patients online using a programme called Medlink and you can catch up with that on recent podcasts or hear more about it at the Snug Members Day as well. But what about this question that we're focusing on today? How many patients with diabetes have been lost to follow up or may have had a deterioration in their condition because of the COVID-19 pandemic? We asked that question to Dr. Jamie Hartman Boyce, an Associate Professor in the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. Now she published a paper at the start of the pandemic predicting that such a national emergency may have an adverse effect on the care of patients with long-term conditions. And now, over two years later, there is some evidence starting to emerge that a significant number of patients may not have had their usual follow-up during the pandemic although there is some variation within different subgroups. So we discussed all this, what it might mean for the care of patients with diabetes and other long-term conditions, and how we might now start to address the problem. Really delighted to have you join us in the podcast today, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what it is you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an associate professor in the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford, where I wear a few different hats. Um, So I'm a scientist, I'm not a clinician. Uh, I direct a DPhil program, so a PhD program in evidence-based healthcare. And then my research really mainly is evidence synthesis, so quite complex systematic reviews. Prior to the pandemic, mainly those were in the area of tobacco control and diet and exercise, weight management type stuff, so health behaviors. During the pandemic, I got kind of 
much more professionally interested in long-term condition care as well. Um, and I'm continuing some of that work too. And that came originally from a personal interest because I have type 1 diabetes. So yes, found that I was looking up a lot of this stuff in the pandemic and then thought actually probably other people are interested in this too. And maybe I should do this as part of my job. So it was really relevant to yourself as a person as well. Exactly. And I would imagine working in the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine must be pretty interesting. It's fantastic. It is a really dynamic environment. Um, And one of the really wonderful things about it is people are kind of constantly asking really interesting questions. And when we're lucky enough, we have the opportunity to go out and find data and answer those. So, So it's a great place to work. Now, we've been thinking a bit recently on the podcast about the care of patients with long-term conditions and and how information and technology can really help us with that and trying to improve things. And I'd found a paper by you and your team uh, published at the start of the pandemic. I was really interested because it was reviewing the sort of evidence of management of long-term conditions during things like pandemics and national emergencies and with the risks potentially to patients. Could you just outline for us what that paper concluded? Yeah, absolutely. So... We basically set out in that paper, it was early on, as you say, it was in March of 2020. So there wasn't that much evidence specific to this situation. But we found a lot of evidence, unsurprisingly, that disruptions to care, including diversions to healthcare resources, interruptions to medical supplies, can impact people with long-term conditions during national emergencies. And also, depending on the condition, of course, some conditions can be affected by other disruptions, including increased stress, or in the case of something like diabetes, changes in diet and activity levels. And the data we had didn't suggest that any long-term conditions were kind of in the clear. You know, it kind of seemed like every care of every long-term condition was at risk, but some groups seemed to be particularly prevalent in the data as being at risk. And those included people living with cardiovascular disease, people living with diabetes, older people, and also kind of throughout the data. And again, unfortunately, as one might expect, people living in deprived areas. And we also tried to look there if there had been strategies proposed, used, tested to help support people with long-term conditions during this sort of disruption. Um, And a number of strategies were proposed. There wasn't that much evidence on them. So it was more kind of, okay, in hindsight, this is what maybe we could have done. Uh, And we grouped those into kind of planning and response mode actions. And I suppose the common themes across them were collaboration. So kind of working together with patients, healthcare providers from different areas, communication and continuity um, of care so that patients knew where to turn to if they had questions, if they needed access to medications, et cetera, during these disruptions. Looking back, it was really significant that you published that paper at the time you did. And I was just wondering, was that paper pulled together really quickly or had you anticipated something like this pandemic happening? Um, I suppose a little bit of both. So on a personal level, I think I tend to be a little bit of an expect the worst type person, unfortunately. So so when kind of news started coming out of China, I was like, oh, here we go. Um, so it was very much as was in my consciousness and, of course, personally in my consciousness as someone with a long term condition and thinking like, is my insulin stocked up? You know, all those thoughts that we go through. But this paper was pulled together really quickly. What was really lovely um at the start of the pandemic within the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine and, you know, the department in Oxford and academic medicine more generally, I suppose, was at least I really experienced a feeling of we're all in it together and it's kind of all hands on deck situation. A lot of my colleagues are clinical and they were preparing for 
really kind of very intense situations. And I thought, well, it's the least I can do to kind of synthesize some evidence because that is a skill set I have. I can do that relatively quickly. So they put together a COVID-19 kind of evidence service within the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, and people submitted questions to it. Um, a lot of those people were healthcare providers who were submitting questions. And one of the questions that came through and that my colleague, uh, Associate Professor Kamal Matani, who wrote this article with me, had flagged up as something he was worried about in his experience as a GP was this issue of management of patients with long-term conditions during the pandemic. Um, I think he'd been in the situation in his practice where they were starting to go through and cancel routine appointments, and, and he was already thinking, what does that mean? So probably by from when we ran these searches with the help of a brilliant information specialist to when this article was published was probably only a matter of days. It went quickly, and we did a lot of these quite rapidly at the start of the pandemic. Yeah, because it's so much happened uh, during that time and it became very evident that patients were worried about even coming near the practice. Yes. And I guess there's also been things like because patients have gone out less, they've been less active, they've probably eaten more. Uh, and I, I just wonder yeah, where we are with the care of diabetes now. For, for example, in, in our own practice, we've looked at some of the numbers. And if we look back to before the pandemic, say to, to 2018, the number of diabetes patients with no hemoglobin A1c in the previous two years was something like two or three percent. Now it's increased to about nine percent. It's trebled. Yeah. And looking at the people that have had their hemoglobin A1c done, the control is worse. And that, that worries me. And I just wonder, does that reflect experience elsewhere, do you think? It's a fascinating question. So it's something we're reviewing at the moment. Um, I think it does to some extent. Certainly we know that in the UK also things like diabetic eye screenings and all of those things that we know are really essential to diabetes care are down. Um, one of, I suppose, my ongoing worries is that I think when it comes to really seeing the hard end of what this is going to mean for people with diabetes, chances are the complications are going to come out in the next few years instead of having already occurred. So I think we need to to address some of these issues really quickly to get on top of them. What we found, we so we did a systematic review, which is currently under review, of data on HbA1c and things like time and range, which you can get from continuous glucose monitors and flash glucose monitoring systems. And interestingly, a lot of those showed no change or even possible improvement during the pandemic with the notable exceptions being ones looking at HbA1c in deprived areas. And I think what we had have is this situation where the data that we do have at the moment is from the people who are least likely to have been adversely affected by the pandemic, you know, especially in places where there isn't national health care. Uh, we know that people in, in more deprived communities aren't having continuous glucose monitors, might be less likely to get their HbA1Cs done. So I think there is probably within the data we have some suggestions that some groups control is getting worse, as it were. But also the thing that really worries me is the people we don't have data on, to be honest. I don't think data are missing at random in any way. I think there's a whole subset of the population who's probably been very affected and are less likely to see their healthcare providers as a result. Yeah. And that's something that we'd certainly be keen to tackle within general practice. So there was a, a paper I noticed that you'd written in Diabetes Care. I think it was along the lines of patients with diabetes being more at risk from complications. And as you've said, it, it's clearly 
subgroups of patients in that category. But are you starting to see patients with diabetes who have had more complications because they've had COVID? That's a great question. I think, at least to the best of my knowledge, we don't have good enough data on that yet, I suppose. I think there's still a lot of sifting through the data that's needed. We know, of course, that people with diabetes are at higher risk from COVID. Um, so if they get it at much higher risk of uh, severe disease and death, and the data kind of is consistent within the UK about that and throughout the world about that particular issue. So yeah, I think we'll hopefully get more data on that as time goes on as well. There's also some data to suggest that people who get COVID are more likely to then go on and develop diabetes, which is a different question and another interesting one. So I think there's a lot of interplay between the two that we really need to take some more time to unpick carefully. Well, that's really interesting. I've certainly seen people in our practice who have now developed diabetes and it's it's evident that there is a sort of trend and, and, and people have maybe put on weight, you know, and you could see yeah. a link yeah. in, in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's there's certainly evidence of associations, right? So people who aren't categorized as having diabetes get COVID and then are more likely to be subsequently categorized as having diabetes. And there are also a number of plausible mechanisms that could be causal there. Uh, but there's a number of other things that could be happening as well, including picking up un previously undetected diabetes, also temporary blood sugar rises, either from infection or from dexamethasone. So a lot to unpick. There is kind of a global registry now that's trying to pick up new cases of diabetes after COVID and, and look into this in more detail. So it's certainly an active area of research and hopefully something we'll be hearing more about in the coming year. It's so interesting at the moment as, well, not just the NHS, but well, not just general practice, but the NHS in general tries to rebuild into this new new, new world, really. And there has been an attempt to, to, to prioritise more urgent conditions, maybe like suspected cancer or, or just dealing with demand. But I, I wonder, in general terms, do you think people with other long-term conditions like maybe hypertension, COPD, asthma, you know, that these might also have been lost to follow-up and maybe at risk of increased complications? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, somewhat undoubtedly. What I think there definitely will be, too, is a postcode lottery element to it. Yeah. Um, with some areas more able to kind of offer their routine appointments. But I think it's just, it's almost inevitable, right? It's very difficult to imagine a scenario where care of any long-term condition, especially that doesn't have acute presentations at the moment, hasn't suffered for the past couple of years as a result of the pandemic, the disruptions and the access to healthcare and screening. And I guess the big question is how should we be trying to tackle this? And I, I'm just wondering, is there any evidence-based strategy that you know of that we could we could adopt? Yeah, so there has been some research into this, though not very much. And of course, what we're really interested in are some of the longer term outcomes, which we just don't have data on yet anyways. At kind of the height of the pandemic, where people were locked down, not leaving their houses, etc., a number of strategies were put out in terms of kind of web-based communication, um, some kind of mobile app platforms, things like that, uh, in various different countries, which had good data on use. So there, there was quite a lot of sign of engagement um, in terms of whether or not that actually impacted on longer term health outcomes in those groups. That's unclear to me. 
What I think is somewhat obvious is that what we absolutely need to be doing, we don't have evidence on it yet, but is targeting the people who we don't, who we haven't spoken to, who we haven't seen in general practice, get their readings, check their feet, check their eyes in the case of diabetes. I know that, it, you know, where I get my eye screening done, um, they've started calling people the night before to try and reassure them and really convince them to come in. And that's a whole extra level of burden on the healthcare providers and healthcare system. But I know a lot of people individually are doing a huge amount to try and get people re-engaged um, with the healthcare system and their care. So I think it's really trying to think about the gaps in the records and also what what I hope we will eventually have is some data which shows even more clearly which groups are most likely to have been adversely affected um, by the pandemic in terms of care and their longer term conditions. And if we're in a situation with limited resources, some efforts to prioritize those groups and triage care in their direction. Um, but we don't really have much evidence on that yet, as it were. Because I suppose with with COF and with the systems that we have had in place for dealing with patients with chronic conditions, general practices are well placed to identify patients, but yeah. it's going to take uh, a will to do that. And whenever people are stressed and busy and, and concentrating on, on, on other things, it, I, th I think, as you say, there could be a variation in, in how this is tackled. And I, yeah, you almost wonder if it needs a regional or even national approach to try and tackle the lost diabetic problem. Yeah, I, I think if we are going to move towards anything near equitable, then yes, right? Because otherwise, undoubtedly, the practices under the most strain are likely to be the ones with the least resource to then follow up their, their people with diabetes who aren't in their systems. So I think, yes, probably we do need something at that level. I think there's a lot of diabetes technology that shows so much promise and opportunity and can be harnessed. But even prior to the pandemic, there was a huge divide in terms of access and use of that technology across not only income, but also ethnicity. And so I think a lot of these things need a proactive solution rather than kind of saying, OK, here we are. You can come see us if you want and hoping for the best, because as we know, that's that's not really how things necessarily are going to work out yeah absolutely and it's going to i guess it'll take several years before we really see the the full implications of what's happened exactly and i mean for me on, on kind of a personal level i was doing a new pump a new insulin pump during the pandemic and was able to get one by being relatively proactive about it but then normally i would have seen a pump trainer because it was a completely new system and it was a closed loop so it was integrated with um my continuous glucose monitor but there was there was no one to train me on it. So I trained myself on it and it was fine. And then I realized when I was thinking through, well, this this works based on the half-life of insulin and the insulin I'm on has a different half-life than most insulins. And I thought, is this the appropriate insulin? And looked that up and it wasn't and all of this. And I'm a fairly intelligent person and it took me a lot of work to program an artificial organ on my own. Um, and I just thought this this is exactly the ways in which this inequity is creeping in you know, and, and it was just, you know, I'm very grateful for the support I had and for being able to access that technology. But I just thought this is this is not something that is sharing access evenly across the population. And this is only going to be exacerbated as resources are, are squeezed as we come out of the pandemic. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it, there's huge challenges for all of us as we try and address these kind of issues and refocusing care on, on, on the people that really need it. Yeah. So it's, it's been great to talk. And I, I know you've got other interests and I know you're interested in, in smoking cessation. Yes. Um, have you seen any effect of the pandemic on, on how people have been smoking? Well, interestingly, some data from the first year showed that more people had quit smoking than perhaps would have been expected otherwise, which is always brilliant news. I don't know if that trend has continued. I'd be curious to see. And there's a, there's a number of possible reasons for that, one of which is, of course, um, potential concerns about health. But also for a lot of people, smoking is not a straightforward addiction. There are all sorts of behavioral and psychological cues that make it really hard to quit smoking. And many of those have to do with being around other people who smoke. And so in the periods when we were locked up in our houses, if we were fortunate enough to live with people who didn't smoke, then as someone who smoked, that might have made quitting easier as well. But it will be interesting to see if that was kind of a temporary trend or if that continues over time. Absolutely. And have you got any other big interests that you're working on at the moment? No, I'd say you've kind of hit on my main ones. We've been lucky enough to be working with the World Health Organization on some of this stuff around particularly diabetes and asthma and COVID. Um, so we're just gonna, about to be kicking off some more work uh, looking in more detail at the impact of disruptions to diabetes care. Um, and I, as you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm originally from the States and I have a particular interest in what's happening there in terms of access to insulin and insulin rationing. Um, so yeah, watch this space, but that's something that I hope to be looking at in a bit more detail. And I also, as always, do a lot of work on electronic cigarettes. And as our government um, seems to be edging towards even more promotion of them as a smoking cessation aid, that is something that undoubtedly I'll keep being quite involved with as well. Just very briefly, are those a good thing? Do you do you encourage those? Yeah, so the evidence that we have so far, obviously they're relatively new, so there's still some uncertainties, but suggest that they are a very effective way to help people quit smoking, more effective than nicotine replacement therapy, for example, which is one of our frontline therapies. We know that within the area of smoking cessation, there are lots of evidence-based treatments. However, even with kind of the best frontline ones available, the majority of people who try to use them won't be able to successfully quit in that quit attempt. So we absolutely need new and better ways to help people quit smoking. And the evidence we have so far suggests that e-cigarettes with nicotine uh, are effective at helping people quit smoking, are going to reduce their harm. So there are concerns about the longer term harms of e-cigarettes. But what we have to remember is that smoking really is uniquely deadly. It kills one in two kind of long term regular smokers, which is appalling, kind of amazing that it's still legal when we think about that. So there are all sorts of concerns and controversies around the use of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. But ultimately, when we think about how hard it is to quit smoking and how damaging to health it is to smoke, generally, I think the evidence suggests that we should definitely be continuing to explore e-cigarettes as an option for people who smoke and want to quit. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, look, Jamie, it's been really good to talk to you today and, and, and get your insights you know, into all these really important um, subjects, particularly the diabetes. You diabetes. too. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what an interesting chat that was. And it has really made me think about where should be trying to focus our resources over the next year or so. 
In UK general practice, we are really well set up to identify our patients with diabetes and other long-term conditions because we have computerised disease registers and we have had many years trying to reach quaff targets. Now, we have had a pretty awful couple of years where our focus has just had to be on keeping practices going, meeting the massive demand for acute care while helping with assessment of COVID patients, then the vaccinations, all the while dealing with staff shortages and working in what has sometimes felt like a call centre. But there are now new areas of need to focus on, like the care of patients with long-term conditions, multimorbidities, who have not been seen face-to-face and may have had a deterioration in their conditions without even knowing it. Now, we probably are sending these patients an invitation for review, but for whatever reason, there are lots of patients who aren't taking this up. So we can use our disease registers to see who hasn't been followed up for the last couple of years and maybe target them for a phone call from a GP or a practice nurse just to see what's happening with them and even offering them another review. Anyway, hope that's been of interest and given you some food for thought. Do join us online for the Snug Members Day coming up on Wednesday, May the 25th. If you have any suggestions for more podcast topics, please let us know, either by emailing Alex DeFranco or myself. It's andrew.mcelhinney2 at nhs.scot. And so that's the end of this trilogy. I would have to admit that my favourite is probably this one. This is it. If we could somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor. Next Saturday night... We're sending you back to the future. But there are some other great contenders. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. See you next time.